Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on X, the former Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. All right, so I have a bit of housekeeping to do. As I noted at the end of the last episode, I forgot to address the issues with the all-star selection process and offer the suggestions I have for solving them. As I promised at the end of the previous episode, Uh, the timing actually is good considering that this is the eve of the 2024 All-Star Game. Uh, I also said I would like to address the controversy surrounding the league's new policy that players must play a minimum of 65 games in order to be eligible for postseason awards. Now, why is that such a hot button? Because Eligibility for Supermax contracts is tied to a player winning certain postseason awards. It's only about 3% of the players in the league, but those are the players who have the loudest voices. And when they expressed a little pushback, it became a thing. Now, I don't know if I will get to that in this episode. I hope to, but we shall see. So first, let's get into the selection of All-Stars. The current format has fans, players, and media voting for the starting five of each conference. The fan vote is given 50% weight, while the players and media split the other 50%, 25% each. This isn't how it always was. When the All-Star Game first came into existence, sports writers and broadcasters selected five starters and three bench players. And I imagine... At the very beginning, when we're talking the 60s, broadcasters were probably radio broadcasters. Weren't a whole lot of NBA games being shown on TV, and there weren't a whole lot of broadcast crews. Coaches picked only the last two players on the roster. So there was 10 in each conference, and eight of them were picked by sports writers and broadcasters. Now, I don't know exactly what was behind it, but there were several replacements every year. That's not a new thing. The rosters 
then grew from 10 to 11 in the 70s. And up until 1973, it was a rule that every team had to be represented, which may explain why in 71, 72, and 73, each conference picked 14 All-Stars. So there's been a lot of variation over the years, not only in how the teams were selected, but even how many All-Stars were selected. And that representing every team, there are still echoes of that today. The voting for the starters was handed over to the fans for the 1975 game. And back then, you had to attend a game to vote. They'd hand out ballots at the games. Ushers would come along and hand them, hand them and pass them down each row. And you marked the players you were voting for And they were either collected by the ushers or it was left to you to drop in a voting box on the concourse. That, in any case, is how I remember it. I only went to, as a kid, I went to exactly one NBA game. I went to a lot of college basketball games, University of Cincinnati, Bearcats, but only one game at Cincinnati Gardens when I was a kid to see the what was then the Cincinnati Royals. They weren't in town very long, so that was part of it. I didn't grow up with uh, with much money, so that was the other part of it. But my dad t- did take me to uh, one game, and I did get to see Tiny Archibald. So there's that. Don't remember much other than <laughs> it was a very smoke-filled arena. I remember that. Now, a lot has changed, and I haven't done a deep dive on the legitimacy of the voting, but my guess is that the fan vote had a lot more integrity back in the day, simply because the only way you could vote was if you went to an actual game, which meant on some level, you were a connected fan. Now, not only can a fan who never has watched a second of an actual game vote, but because of periods where votes count more than at other times, a fan who never has watched a second of an actual game can have more voting power, potentially, than a fan who has season tickets and is a league pass devotee. The, yeah, I know, that was a little highfalutin devotee. The word just came to mind. Anyway, the entire all-star concept, by the way, is essentially a marketing gimmick. Gimmick. We, We have to keep that in mind. That's an important part of what I want to discuss here. Yes, it's a way to put the spotlight on the best players. But that, again, is essentially marketing, is it not? Tripling the value of a vote or however much they are juiced or have been juiced now or in the past during certain periods is a dead giveaway that the league is more concerned with drumming up fan interest than having the all-star rosters be a true or the truest reflection of the players playing best that season. That the size of the rosters and the process for picking them has changed over the years dilutes the value of being an all-star as well, in my mind. I think we all forget that. I know when I'm rating players' careers, I often check to see how many all-star appearances they've made. It's shorthand. We do it all the time. And those all-star appearances are right there in basketball or on Basketball Reference, the website. That's one of the ones that I use probably most frequently. 
there's a star next to each season that they were that that player was named an all-star and when you see a long row of them it's eye-catching it's impressive but it's something that looks substantial when it's actually not necessarily Vince Carter made the 2003 all-star team despite only playing 15 games in the first half of that season as an example of how popularity with fans undermined the historical value of the ward and an undermining that we don't readily recognize. Now, to go back and examine exactly which all-star berths a player earned were legit and which ones were simply a reflection of their popularity or name recognition would be a load of work. An easier solution at this point is to start diminishing in our minds the value of being an all-star. After all, Rod Strickland was not an all-star the year that he won the assist title. He made the all-NBA second team, but he was not an all-star. And that's not because the second half of his season or the last 30 games post-all-star, post, post he suddenly, all-star game, he suddenly blew up. He was good all year long. Now imagine that, he all-NBA second team, top, which essentially makes him one of the top 10 players in the league, but he was not selected to be one of the top 24. Rasheed Wallace, one of the most talented big men I've seen in my time covering the league, played 16 years, and he was an all-star four times. Now, part of that is because he was in the league when they picked two guards, two forwards, and a center for each position, and his competition included Carl Malone and Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett and Dirk Nowitzki, to name a few. And he never made an All-NBA team, which, in hindsight, is also crazy. Anthony Mason made an All-NBA team. Glenn Rice, Finn Baker, and Antonio McDice all received All-NBA honors as forwards. Now, no offense to any of them, all very good players, but it underscores how popularity even colored that award. Less so because it was selected by the media, but Sheed was a difficult interview, and coaches saw him as a pain in the ass to coach, and all of that resulted in Rasheed Wallace never getting the credit for being the kind of player he actually was. And maybe he was a pain in the ass, but he could play. And he was as instrumental, instrumental in the Pistons' long run of Eastern Conference dominance as anyone. He was also as good or better defensively than Ben Wallace, who was the winner of four Defensive Player of the Year awards, while Rashid never made an all-defensive team once. If you saw him play, if you saw the Pistons play, you know how vital Rashid Wallace was to their team at both ends of the court. Kobe Bryant suffered from the same issue when it came to league MVP awards, of which he only won one. Media people, people talk about him with fondness and reverence now in the wake of his tragic death, but he didn't always generate warmth and fuzzies from the media. So, in general, it would be fair to say that all awards are not an, an accurate representation of who the most talented players in the league were or are. But nothing, nothing, nothing has been as distorted as all-star recognition. 
for a long time, as I said, the fans picked the five starters, which was purely a popularity contest. And then the league's coaches picked the seven reserves, which was sort of a carrot and stick utilization. They would reward players who were easily were great players and were easily coached. And it was also based on a certain amount of horse trading. You vote for my guy, I'll vote for yours. And, as I said, a way to punish guys like Rashid or Rod or Dennis Rodman, a two-time defensive player of the year, the league's leading rebounder seven consecutive seasons. But he was an all-star only twice. These are all guys who were looked at as, at the very least, high-maintenance guys by the coaches. And they would snub them by not selecting them for the all-star game. Now, what's my solution? You either make it a straight popularity contest. The fans select the 12 players they want to see play in the all-star game from both conferences. Or you split the vote among media, players, and coaches, and you have them select all 24 players. No more of this, the fans and players and coaches, or excuse me, the fans, players, and media pick five, and then the coaches alone pick the other seven. It means that you're using two different metrics to select the team, and yet they're all considered all-stars. You also, if we're going to do it this way, if it's just going to be media players and coaches, this is maybe the most important part if we go that direction. And that's, you have to insist that the players not make a mockery of it, as they have done since being part of the process. And they do it by naming guys that have no business receiving an all-star vote. I don't know how many players don't take it seriously or, or, or make a joke of it, but there are quite a few guys who receive votes that sometimes aren't even playing. And maybe the, the way to resolve that is just by having a set of qualifications for being considered for all-star recognition. Like the league could actually winnow down the candidates to receive an all-star vote. And it could be a fairly wide berth. You have to be a starter or you have to have whatever. You can, you can find benchmarks to, to set it up. But it would eliminate the obvious joke votes that have been cast. Like just last year, Matthew Dellavedova received two player votes. McKinley Wright, the fourth. Bryn Forbes. Garrett Temple. Ish Smith. Dwayne Washington Jr. Kendrick Nunn. And that's just part, that's a partial list of players who received at least one all-star vote last year from the players. Which, as an aside, is why I laugh when a fan suggests that the media shouldn't vote, doesn't qualify to vote. The players should because they know who deserves it and who doesn't. First of all, no, they don't. Uh, most of them, they're either going to vote for their friends or they're just going to make a joke of it. They're certainly not going to study it the way we in the media do to try to get it right. We, we feel like it's our responsibility to get it right. We don't always, but we try. The players? Players don't, don't feel that same responsibility. Or at least they don't act like they do. 
Now, however the voting is conducted, don't have one process for selecting, selecting the starters and one for selecting the reserves. Because in the big picture, historically, no one distinguishes between starters and reserves. And if they do, more honor is given to being a starter, which isn't necessarily earned. Whatever is done, expanding it to 15 players from each conference is not the way to go. And I was uh, grateful to hear Commissioner Adam Silver saying that there is no plan to do that. I'm glad to hear that because the only way you do that, well, you can't, you can't do it without any other changes. The water, the award is watered down as it is. Factor in that there are at least four or five injury replacements every year. And if we expand it to 15, we're now talking about 35 to 40 players being recognized as all-stars every season. And again, in the big picture, when we're going through basketball reference or any catalog of all-stars, it doesn't always distinguish who's an injury replacement. So there are nearly a half dozen teams in the league right now that don't have a single player who merits all-star recognition. Charlotte, Detroit, Portland, Portland, and Washington, for sure. Yet, chances are, they'd have one if the rosters were expanded. As I said, I uh, see echoes of the old requisite that there be an all-star selected from every team. Again, marketing. That's you want every team recognitioned, recognized so that every fan base has reason to tune in and pay attention. And I don't I wouldn't want that if I was a true all-star caliber player. The players shouldn't want it expanded because again, it waters down it waters it down, at least not for the players who are legit all-stars. Now, why do I care about all this? Because as someone who votes and takes that vote seriously, and is regularly asked to rate or compare players publicly, I'd like All-Star recognition to be an accurate guide or reflection to doing so. It would be a valuable or useful tool if it were that. And we still use it that way, even though we probably shouldn't. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Or just go the other direction. Make it a popularity contest. Acknowledge it as such. And stop looking at it as the earmark of the best of the best. I'm good with that too. I've said it in the past. Like There's certain players I would have loved to have seen in the All-Star game every year just because they were so entertaining. Uh, Jason White Chocolate Williams at the head of the list. I would have loved to have seen him doing his Pete Maravich act with passes that aren't, I think, technically legal, but who cares? The ingenuity was right there with guys coming up with, with different dunks. So that's, that's one way to do it. 
And uh, and maybe we should do that anyway, since the damage already has been done. But I'd prefer to make it legitimate going forward and taking into consideration that it wasn't always. And in the meantime, maybe we should all view All-Star Recognition in a slightly different way. DeMontis Sabonis is having arguably the best year of his career on a winning team. He's not an All-Star. Trey uh, Young putting up numbers but playing the worst defense of his career, all for a losing team. He is an All-Star. Scotty Barnes from the Toronto Raptors, losing team. Is he playing? Is he having a year comparable to Sabonis? No. Is his team having success? No. He's an all-star. And I have nothing against Scotty, but to me that is a reflection of we're going to I mean he represents an entire country. We got to get we got to get a Canadian, <laughs> we got to get a, a Raptor in there if we can. And granted, Trey, Scotty, Trey is an injury replacement. And he and Scotty Barnes are in a different conference than DeMontis. So it's not as if Trey or Scotty took a, po- a spot that DeMontis deserved. But 20 years from now, will anyone remember the details? It's doubtful. If neither of them, and that's Trey and DeMontis, neither of them ever makes another all-star team. They will be remembered as both being three-time All-Stars and thereby players of equal caliber. Now, I'm sure I'd get pushback on this, but when I look at DeMontis Sabonis' career and what he's done, uh, Trey has had some moments. But I would say over the course of DeMontis' career, he has been a more impactful player than Trey Young. I'm not good with those two being measured the same way. First of all, DeMontis is far more of a two-way player, and we don't give that nearly enough credit. Trey is a disaster on defense, which is why, for the most part, his teams have not been successful in spite of the fact that he puts up amazing offensive numbers. And he does put up amazing offensive numbers. But this is the killer. When I see somebody putting up those kind of numbers, averaging 20-plus points, shooting the three well... 10-plus assists average, and his team has a losing record, I'm thinking, there's something missing here. Those, aren't, those, are, those are great numbers. They're not winning numbers. And I don't reward that. There's, there's a missing element there. It means that whatever he's doing is not being done at the right time in the right way, and chances are he's giving a lot of those numbers to the other team by how he plays on defense. And this whole DeMontis Trey thing is just one small, quick example of how relying on stats or awards to define a player's greatness is rife with the potential to be misled. I've often said Steve Nash, when he won his three MVPs, or actually, when he won his two, the third year when he lost was his best year. We've kind of gone through some of the same things with Nikola Jokic more recently and that's that's the MVP award but it 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 happens with every award and it is a misrepresentation of the history of the game DeMontis Sabonis is having the best year of his career he was an all-star last year he's not an all-star this year this <laughs> feels like we are 
undermining history. And maybe I'm more sensitive to this right now because I've had some what I take to be probably young fans of the NBA challenging me on ideas of how the game has changed and suggesting that there's no proof of what I've seen with my own eyes on YouTube, so it must not have happened. In spite of the fact that I saw it happen, you've got players from that era talking about how it's happened, and the, then, then the conspiracy theory comes up, well, you're from that era, they're from that era, you're just defending your era. Yeah, come on. I have no dog in the fight. And someone like Kenny Smith, who has made it in the media since then and has no like reputation as a great, great player to protect, he has no reason to tell you, yeah, it was harder back then. He doesn't gain anything from that. We don't change our view of Kenny. He, he was an NBA player. He was a good NBA player. He was part of Houston Rockets championship teams. But whether hand-checking checking had an influence or not, or what his opinion of it is, doesn't change the way we view him. There's just the conspiracy theory or the idea that we're all lying to protect ourselves just doesn't make any sense. Especially when, when we're debating people who never saw that era. Looking up YouTube, not even looking up YouTube clips. They're like, I can't find any YouTube clips that reflect what you are saying happened okay that's not my responsibility and honestly i don't i don't feel the need to prove anything to you but if you ask me i'm going to tell you this is what i saw this is what i see now i saw the game then i see the game now trust me i recognize the difference or don't trust me but don't come to me and tell me that i'm wrong because you've watched the game for the last seven eight years and you've researched YouTube, however that might have gone about, and you can't find any proof of what me and every other player who played 15, 20 years ago when hand-checking was allowed, you can't find any proof of that. Or come up with a hypothesis of why illegal defense somehow made it easier to score. I, I love engaging fans of the NBA, and I try to remain open-minded and teachable. I don't approach it as if I know everything. But when someone comes at me and attacks my view of things and suggests that I have some sort of agenda because my view doesn't agree with what they want to believe or what their view is, it kind of makes me laugh and it makes it hard to take someone like that seriously. You're not a serious person if that is your view of how this works. I had a fan the other day uh, come at me about not regarding Kristaps Porzingis as being clutch because after 40 games this season, he is ranked second in clutch statistics, which I'm not sure exactly how it works, but apparently measures scoring and percentages late in games with the score within a certain margin. That's what I'm I believe that's what it is. As if that tells the whole story. That Kristaps Porzingis is number two, Derek White is number nine. And this fan said, I'm going to be reminding you of the fact that you don't think Kristaps is clutch every chance that I get. Well, he's not because I muted him. But <laughs> I muted him because if that's your purpose, 
we're just we're so far apart. There's no point in us engaging each other. Uh, Chris Stapps is ranked second in clutch statistics. All right, as if Chris Stapps playing with a team loaded with the most talent of any in his career, as if the Boston Celtics aren't wildly different from the Washington Wizards team that he was on previously, or that he's not going to naturally benefit in those late game situations because of the talent around him and by having far less attention on him by opponents and being further down the priority list on the opponent's game plan. Chris Tapps has looked as good as I've ever seen him this season. That's, that's the killer here for me, having some, coach, uh, some, some fan out of the blue come at me about my opinion of, of Chris Stapps because I've actually given him more flowers this year than ever. I see a difference in him. Some of that may be the fact that he's playing with a better team, but I see a maturity in him that I haven't seen before. And so that's also why I struggle with this idea of somebody coming at me and thinking that I'm not giving Kristaps enough credit. And Again, it isn't the numbers. It's the way he carries himself. Players in the league routinely punked him. And he clearly didn't know how to respond. He'd either put on a tough guy act and try to go back at them physically, which he's not really built to do. Or he'd try too hard to score on them and force shots that often didn't fall. Or he'd try to pretend that he wasn't affected, which led to a certain passivity. Now, now, he just takes it in stride, and he keeps playing. Those are the things that don't show up in box scores, and the things that I pay attention to, and the things that analytic-obsessed fans want to call narrative. I suspect it's because it exposes numbers as not telling the whole story, or that they can't recognize such changes in a player themselves. So... It's easier to dismiss them or act as if they don't exist than acknowledge that their understanding of the game has a hole in it and might have to evolve. Okay, I could go on, but I do want to address the uproar over players having to play a minimum of 65 games to be eligible for postseason awards. Now, it does not count for rookie all-rookie or sixth man, if I'm not mistaken. And there are a couple of other particulars, exceptions. Player plays, I think, what, like 80, 85% of a team's games and then has a season-ending injury, they're still eligible. So there are a couple of uh, exceptions. But as I said at the start, the reason I believe that players, certain players have an issue with it primarily is because winning awards determines whether they are eligible for a supermax contract. If a player in his seventh through ninth season makes an all-NBA team or wins MVP or defensive player of the year or wins at least one of those awards in two of the previous three seasons, they are eligible to be signed to a contract starting at 35% of the salary cap rather than 30%. And when we're talking eight-figure amounts over the course of five years, that's a notable difference. Another issue is that it forces the player to make a choice. If you have to play a minimum of 65 games to be eligible. And that 
is sometimes playing with a nagging injury in order to make the 65 games and risk a long-term injury or rest up, miss out on the Supermax, and make up for it by perhaps playing a few more years than he would if he played with a nagging injury and it led to something more serious. I don't think that's an unreasonable choice for players to have to make. Players right now want it both ways. And the reason I don't think it's unreasonable is because the players having to make that decision are pulling in generational wealth no matter what. Far more than their predecessors who didn't have a choice. They had to play, even if it meant a shorter career. Money and how to make as much as possible is really what's driving this. I was once told by a player, and I believe it to be true and still be true, that there are only so many NBA minutes in a player's body. That the the human body breaks down after a certain amount of playing in the NBA. Now, it can be variable based on genetics and how well that player takes care of themselves, but by and large, there's there's a beatdown that happens and there's a baseline of how much a body can take before it at least starts breaking down. Maybe they can continue to play because of their size or their ability or whatever it might be, but there's going to be an effect. And I believe the number of minutes in a human body has been expanded because of the introduction of load management, advances in sports medicine, and I would argue the game not being as demanding today as it once was. But if a player can average 55 to 60 60 games a year instead of 70 to 80, he can spread those allotted NBA minutes over more seasons, which means more contracts, which means more moolah. And if they can get all the accolades and be paid at the same rate, no matter how many games they play, then why wouldn't a player who is a shrewd businessman look to do that? That would be the incentive. Now, there may be some fans out there who would argue a player shouldn't have to risk injury in order to get paid top dollar. To which I would say, everyone who wants to succeed in any pastime, in any profession, generally has to push themselves beyond what normal limits are. Whether it's studying to become a doctor or lawyer or being a doctor or lawyer or building houses or digging ditches, starting a a tech company, you name it. Those who get ahead generally have to make a sacrifice in time or physical dress or sleep or all of the above. And we don't talk about how unfair it is to any of them. Now, I'm not suggesting that being a professional athlete should be graded or treated or viewed or held to the same standards as a person at a normal job. It doesn't work that way. They're not the same. I'm just saying that to require a player to play a minimum number of games in order to be eligible for the maximum compensation is not unreasonable or unfair. It may not be good for individual players' bank accounts but I believe it is for the overall business of basketball. The appeal of sports 
is that there is an attempt to make outcomes depend on fairness and justice. And it might be a bit of a stretch or an outright illusion, but it's what we like to believe, which is why we howl when an official appears to be wrong or a player gets paid a sum that they do not seem to be worth. And we're getting more and more of that. It's why there is instant replay. We want games to be fair and just, right? It's why we're so obsessed with knowing what players are making because we want to know, are they, are they worth it? And we love the players who seem to be underpaid, who seem to be giving us more than what other players are getting financially. They're, they're, they're providing more, doing more than their compensation. And then we go the other way. And this is just a way to make that more fair. Guys getting paid not to work or manipulating how much they work in order to get paid more. There is nothing just or fair about that to the average fan who has to show up at his work in order to get paid and has to do that job well. Now, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that we should judge players or athletes the exact same way that we do the average worker. They're in a unique profession. It takes a unique set of skills. It's a world unto itself. But in order for that world to work and function and be attractive to people who do work in the, in the regular world, then there have to be some measures taken. If you want to be a super max player, prove it for a minimum of 65 out of 82 games or don't and get paid a little less. That seems awfully reasonable to me. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate the review, rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And in the next episode, I uh, had a, uh, a fan that uh, I exchange uh, messages with on social media on a regular basis, DMs, if you will. And he gave me a great idea. Uh, actually broke it down. So I'm going to go through his breakdown of at this point in the season, we can probably forecast with reasonable accuracy where teams are going to land going into the postseason. So I'm going to review what he sent me and then I'm going to do a deep dive of my own on some of the remaining schedules and where teams sit and what I know about their injury situations, their chemistry situations, and give you a rundown of the teams that we should expect to see in the playoffs at the end of the year, the teams that are going to be in the play-in, and the teams that are going to miss out. That's my plan for the next podcast. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.